If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now, go. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Astronomy from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine. Um, my name's Ian Todd, I'm the magazine's staff writer and I'm here with Elizabeth Pearson who is the magazine's news editor and it's a rather special episode this month, isn't it, Ez? Yes, we're actually um, at Jodrell Bank in Manchester uh, at the Blue Dot Festival 2018. Um, so to tell you a little bit more about Jodrell Bank and the Blue Dot Festival, here's our first interviewee. Um, so I'm here with uh, Teresa Anderson, um, director of the Discovery Centre here at Jodrell Bank. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much for speaking to me, Teresa. Yeah, good, no problem. The the, the story of Jodrell Bank is just it's quite an exciting story, isn't it? I mean, the, the kind of yeah. history of Bernard Lovell and, and how he came to to find yeah, it. I was yeah. wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. So yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it, with hindsight, it all seems terribly you know regulated, and uh, it, it, you know he was a terribly important person, and it was all very serious. And in fact, it was a little bit seat of the pants, frankly, because he came back from the war in 1940. Um, and didn't really return to his work in the lab in Manchester, the University of Manchester, on cosmic rays, um, but started to uh, work on, with radar that he'd been working with during the war um, and basically acquired, goodness knows how, a load of army surplus radar kit um, that they took to the physics department of Manchester, which didn't work because of the interference in the trams that were going up and down the road outside, caused some sparks. And so he said, oh, is there somewhere else I can go? And the university said, oh, well, we've got these botany testing grounds at Jodrell Bank. You can go for two weeks. Well, here we are at Blue Dot, you know, quite a while later. Um, of course, obviously, he never left and he carried on his experiments with army surplus kit gradually moved up through all of the fields on site, putting down concrete, acquiring more army surplus kit, people who came to work for him. And really what happened was slowly the new science of radio astronomy emerged. And it's it's funny now, you know, these days we're used to kind of multi-wavelength astronomy and, you know, telescopes that are infrared or gamma ray or whatever it is. But, you, but back in those days, it was optics or nothing. You know, it was like you looked through it or... You know that was it, and and really when when the first radio instruments started to detect signals from outside our extragalactic radio signals, and then you suddenly realise actually they they're quite handy for picking up some sorts of information that you can't pick up with an optic telescope. Suddenly you've got a new science, and once you're into that part of the EM spectrum, off you go. You know, and now we've got multi-wavelength astronomy right across the spectrum. So what does radio astronomy allow us to see that we can't see in optical light? Well. If you look, if you look at the images, and you know it's hard to sort of sort of talk people through it. What what um, radio astronomy sees is, um, if you like, the radio emissions from the gaps between the stars. Stars generally don't emit much radio um, uh, radiation, but um, you know black holes at the heart of galaxies do, quasars do, and the dust between the stars glows because the cosmic microwave background. 
it's microwave, but you know, really it's radio, sort of. Um, you know, these sorts of things tell us things that you, you can't, it's like, you know, there's a sort of whole jigsaw of all the different wavelengths gives us different bits of information. And, you know, for example, out in our exhibition here, because we've got a public discovery centre here, and um, we've got a, a little exhibit where you can look at look at something in different wavelengths. So you can look at the sun or the moon or the galaxy or whatever. And really, you know, it really brings it home to you when you look, say, you know, the cosmic microwave background overlaid with, you know, an, an infrared image of the galaxy or, in fact, an optical image of the Milky Way, you know, just how different um, the sets of information are you get with different wavelengths. At the very start of um, when Jodrell Bank was, was founded, I mean, it played actually quite an important role in the kind of the space race and the yeah. Cold War, didn't it? Which is yeah, quite funny yeah. to think of that. No, I know. And, and, and it's one of these things, you know, really the telescope doesn't doesn't do what it's supposed to do now, what it was set up to do. It does entirely different things. Now, I remember Sir Bernard saying, you know, before he passed away, and um, I think it was 2012 he passed away, you know, it does things that we never, it looks at things we never even dreamed existed when we built it, you know, so it's got this sort of feeling that actually it's done a ton of things that were never intended and one of the things that happened because its construction coincided with the dawn of the space race, space age if you like, um, the very first thing it did was it tracked the carrier rocket for Sputnik 1, which was the first um, human-made satellite launched into our, uh, above our atmosphere and, um, you know, and, and really worked with both the USA and the USSR through that fantastic space race between the two of them, which is a real spur, you know, to the space, the, the humankind's leap into space. Um, and, you know, it's, it's easy, you know, with hindsight to think about the Apollo missions and the moon landings, especially since the 49th anniversary this year. Um, but actually, until... Um, you know, the eager lander got down. It's touch and go who was going to win it. And really, the Soviets were quite doing quite well. And, you know, you, you read um, stories at the time about, um, you know, the USA sending up a satellite. They went into solar orbit. And you think, what, you mean it missed? You know, so <laughs> it didn't quite go where to the moon or whatever, you know. Was, so I think, you know, and, and, and the massive radio telescopes and the radars here were used throughout by both sides. I mean, I was saying earlier today, you know, in a way, Jodrell Bank was a bit sort of like a scientific Switzerland and that it worked really for the good of science with, with everybody throughout the Cold War. It's quite a sort of exciting principle, really. Yeah, that's, that's kind of one of the things that, that really strikes me about the history of Jodrell Bank. I mean, g given that the, the United Kingdom was effectively an ally of the USA in the Cold War. Um, w was there no pressure on him and on the observatory, given the fact that he was helping the, the Soviets? Well, I think there was, yeah. And I think he, you know, um, certainly had quite chats with quite a few people from the intelligence service. And, you know, he visited the USSR at times when, you know, nobody else got a visa or traveled, you know, was sort of um, baited, you know, as this amazing sort of visiting dignitary. And also the same happened to him in the USA. And, you know, he tells the story of when he went to the USSR, they tried to persuade him to stay and offered him, you know, fantastic funding, wonderful labs, the instruments as large as he wanted and all the rest of it. And the quote was, I'm an Englishman and I belong in England. And, you know, he wanted to get back home to cricket and play in the church organ and cream teas or whatever. But, you know, there's this real sort of sense that um, that, that um, scientific collaboration somehow... And you don't know why, somehow, it was seen as a higher thing and it was more noble and people recognised actually it's a really important, fundamental human thing that we've all got to collaborate, you know, on everything that we do together. I mean, that's one of the things about this Blue Dot Festival, you know, it's very much this sense of we're all on this planet and actually in the universe it's a bit, quite a little thing. And, and you know, it, 
in the universe, life as complex as ours seems to be quite a rare thing. I mean, you know, I hope in my lifetime we'll discover otherwise, but, you know, for now, we've got to look after it. We've got to look after the planet. We've got to um, collaborate and work together on it all. And uh, obviously, George World Bank today is kind of is, is part of that um, looking out into the cosmos. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about, about the work it does today, and also kind of more in the recent history because it's been involved in kind of the discovery of pulsars and things like that, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, it, so the discovery of pulsars really has to be handed to Cambridge, and and you know, much as we'd like to claim it, actually they did <laughs> discover them, and Jocelyn Baldmanel, of course. Um, you know, was the, the woman who was instrumental in that. And after that, though, Jodrell's become world leading, really, in, in work on pulsars. And we've got a really, really crack pulsar team here who, you know, I, I mean, I'd be, I'd be surprised if the Lovell wasn't working on pulsars even through the middle of Blue Dot Festival, apart from the fact that it's part because we're working on it. But, you know, it's a, it's the bread and butter of Jodrell Bank, really, you know, that, that that's what we work on. And then, of course, there is, Jodrell Bank has always been involved to some extent in SETI a little bit. Um, but we do have a number of people who are very interested in it. So the new director of the Judgment Centre for Astrophysics, Mike Garrett, is, um, is a SETI person. So, you know, he's going to be taking that programme forward quite a lot. And, of course, Tim O'Brien's worked on it quite a lot as well. So there's a, there's a bunch of people who are very interested. And, of course, wouldn't it be the big thing? It really would be, yeah. It really is a, a fantastic structure as well. We heard uh, Tim O'Brien say yesterday that he's kind of assuming or presuming it's the only grade one listed building in the world that's on wheels? No, I said that in the talk as well. It's a thing that we all do say, actually. We think that's right. And also, it's a grade one listed structure that doesn't have planning permission. Because apparently Bernard Lovell went into the planning office and said, I'm going to build this new telescope. And they said, does it move? And he said, oh, yes. Even though it just moves on the spot. And they said, oh, well, you don't need planning permission for it. So... That's quite interesting too. <laughs> um, so how did the Blue Dot Festival actually come to be? Whose idea was it? So Tim and I were very, very committed to this idea of science being a part of culture and society. And actually, you know, anyone who works in science knows that if you've got any public funding, there's a democracy that we operate in and actually the people have to be, want science to go forward, especially blue skies research that doesn't immediately deliver economic impact. So, you know, there's a whole kind of public duty thing. As well as that... Science is fun and really exciting. And a lot of people in the cultural uh, sectors think that. And a lot of people think that and that, but have no way to connect with science. And then a lot of people in science have you know, very little overlap with the cultural sectors. So we've got this new um, discovery center here that we opened in 2011. Um, and we decided when we opened it, what we would do is start doing some music events as well. Um, and so the first music event we did was a one-nighter in 2011. And from then, we've gone on and we've done several years where we've done one-nighters and things. But um, this is the third year that we've actually done the camping festival, Blue Dot. And the reason that we moved from the one-nighters to the camping... Well, one of the reasons. One of the reasons is it's fantastic. You get a real atmosphere and there's people on site all weekend and it really builds this sort of... And it is a fantastic site for it, you know. And, you, and people are living in the presence of science, you know. It's just kind of really great thing. But one of the other reasons is it's very, very practical is if you run a one-nighter, it's kind of like a step function. You know, everybody arrives at once. So everybody wants to park at once. The roads get clogged. Everyone comes out of their car and goes, oh, where's the loo? And then everyone goes, oh, I'm starving. So the queues for everything are massive. But if you have a camping festival, people drift in and then they, you know, use the facilities when they want, they get the food when they want, and suddenly it takes all the pressure off everything and it's much more mellow and relaxed. And actually, although you have to build a a small town (laughs) with, you know, a campsite and lighting and generators and... You, you know, a rubbish collection, a bin service and water and all the rest of it. 
actually it makes for a nicer festival altogether and less stress for everybody. I completely agree. It's the, it's the third year of the camping and it's our it's BBC Sky Now magazine's second uh, year here. And um, yeah, we, we enjoyed last year and we're enjoying this year. So oh, that's good. Thank you very much for having us and thank you very much for speaking to us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Do come again next year. We will indeed. Thank you. <laughs> I'm here with Rachel Patonov, who's a senior lecturer in Russian studies at the University of Manchester, and she's just given a talk about how the Cold War affected the space race. Um, so we've all heard in the in the West, anyway, we've heard a lot about how the US viewed the space race and how it involved in the Cold War. What were the sort of main differences between how how the uh, the, the Soviet Union viewed it and how the Americans viewed it? Um, I think, it, in fact, there were quite a lot of similarities that, from the Soviet perspective as from the American perspective, it was very much about ideological competition as well as about um, developing technologies that had military capacity. And so, for example, the kinds of uh, firsts that the Soviet Union was able to achieve in the space race, launching the Sputnik 1 satellite, Sputnik 1 satellite, um, putting the first man in space, putting the first woman in space, were viewed not just as achievements of science and technology, but also as achievements of the Soviet system more generally. The Soviet system was superior to the American one, therefore it could make these firsts, it could achieve these things before the Americans could. Sputnik, um, obviously, it was it was seen as a kind of a, a defeat in the U.S. How, how did was it seen in Russia? In, in the Soviet Union, it was very much viewed as a victory of communism in the um, in the battle with capitalism. So proof again that the Soviet system was superior to the American one, and it was really um, very much like for Americans, putting the first man on the moon was an event that people remembered, that they marked their lives by. Everyone remembers where they were when this happened. In the Soviet Union, people remembered where they were when um, when Sputnik was launched, where they were when um, when the first when Gagarin went into space and these sorts of things. It very much seemed that the, the Soviet Union sort of started out winning the space race. Was mm. that how, how they sort of portrayed it over there? Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. But then things started to go a bit wrong when they started going to... They had a bit of trouble getting to the moon, didn't they? What, yes. What was going wrong there? Um, lack of technology, I guess. The, the, mm. There were certain technological achievements or areas of, of space technology in which the Soviet Union was very much ahead of the US in the early stages, in the late 1950s and, and uh, early 1960s. But um, lunar travel was one area where they simply didn't have um, adequate technology to do this. Um, the Lunar 15 mission that the Soviets sent to the moon that actually reached lunar orbit before Apollo 11 did, crash-landed on the mm. moon, and it was an unmanned mission. So at the point where the U.S. was sending a manned mission to the moon, it's worth pointing out, that actually, that um, that moon landing took place on the 20th of July, 1969, so it's a very fitting date to be talking about that <laughs> today, on the 20th of July, <laughs> yeah. 2018. Um, so the Soviet Union simply wasn't able to keep up in this race for lunar travel. We're stood here um, under the shadow, pretty much, of the Lovell telescope. Um, so I know that Jodrell Bank was, was very involved in the space race. Uh, very much so so, so yeah. how, how did the Russians use Jodrell Bank? Um, as a monitoring station to provide independent confirmation of their various launches. Uh, for example, Jodrell Bank was asked to 
um, to monitor the second Luna mission, moon mission, um, because the first one was believed widely outside the Soviet Union to have been mere propaganda. No one believed that the Soviet Union had actually sent a satellite and tried to reach lunar orbit. So the Soviet Union countered that by launching another one and using Jabril Bank to get independent verification of its success. So those were the kinds of ways in which Jabril Bank was used. A, a similar thing happened in 1967 when the Soviet Union launched um, a Venus probe and again asked Jabril Bank to monitor it so that they had someone other than their own scientists, other than their own journalists, making this claim about what they'd achieved. Well, thank you very much. That was a very interesting talk you just gave, and thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. So I'm here with uh, Philip O'Brien, who is a solar expert from the University of Manchester, and he's just been uh, giving a talk on solar flares. Uh, Philip, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Hi. How did you first become interested in the sun? What was, what was the inspiration behind you deciding to study the sun as, a, as, as your career? Well, I'd always had an interest in astronomy from really from a small child, but actually I kind of went off and slightly did other things. I did a degree in maths, and so it was partly chance that I came back to the sun and to astrophysics when I did my PhD. And I think what I realised when I was choosing my PhD place was that there was a lot of really exciting new stuff about the sun and partly that was the era when we were starting to look at the sun from space. It was actually Skylab in those days and it was sending for the first time pictures of the corona from space and I realised this was really, uh, you know, like a very hot subject and there was a lot of new things going on and it would be a good field to be involved in. It might seem like quite a, a, a simple and perhaps silly question to, to someone like you, but I was wondering if you could just explain what what actually is the sun. Like, can you actually explain what it's what it consists of? Oh, um, <laughs> well, the sun is a star, yeah. of course, um, which means it is, um, in some sense, a huge ball of very hot gas, which is held together by gravity. So, on the one hand, all matter attracts itself, so it's gravity that keeps it together. But on the other hand, it's generating energy by nuclear fusion. Um, and that is constantly heating it up. And so you have, a, if you like, a kind of competition between the fact it's being heated up by the um, generation of energy, which wants to make it fly apart, and gravity wants to make it sort of all pull together. And that keeps it, in general, in this, this very sort of stable um, you know, state, which is you know, what we call a star. And the, the sun is just you know, sort of one of many stars, but in some sense a very typical one. It's about halfway through its life. It's a bit on the small side, but, you know, a similar size to many other stars. And, you know, in some sense, unremarkable as stars go. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's also very dynamic, isn't it? I mean, you've been talking about solar flares today. Um... Yeah, so the atmosphere of the sun is very dynamic. So the, the, the sort of interior, the, the sort of body of the sun is, is, is largely, you know, pretty stable. Um, it does have, the, in the outer layers, it, it's convecting, it, it's sort of churning away, basically, like, you know, a pot of soup on the stove sort of bubbling away. But as you get into the atmosphere, and in particular into the corona, it is incredibly active. It's very changeable. It's very dynamic. So it's doing things, you know, things like flares, which, you know, these, these kind of explosions, but it's also changing over, over the solar cycle. So a lot of things going on, yeah. What actually causes so solar flares? What, how do they actually manifest themselves? What actually are they? Well, what, what we see, the most um, immediate thing, I think you could say that what we see as a solar flare is a, a, a large and a very sort of 
sudden burst of um, X-rays and extreme ultraviolet emission. Um, so the corona is sort of giving out X-rays sort of all the time, but in a flare you get a sort of big burst. Um, there's actually sort of bursts of radiation in, in, in lots of different wavelengths. So you see radio waves, for example, big bursts of radio waves, microwaves, um, some visible light and so on. So that's kind of what you see. Um, but what's causing that is we believe it's all coming from the magnetic field. So you're basically building up energy in the magnetic field. It's getting sort of stressed. Um, and then suddenly it'll, it just kind of gives and uh, a lot of that energy is, is released very suddenly. And that's, yeah. that's a flare. And does this have any effect on, on Earth? Yeah, it certainly can do. Um, it can have a lot of um, effects. I mean, one effect is, is the X-rays. Um, so when those X-rays and um, ultraviolet light, when they um, obviously you know, impact on the atmosphere of the Earth, particularly the sort of outer atmosphere, the um, ionosphere, then that changes the properties a bit of that outer atmosphere. And that can be quite important, for example, for radio propagation. So some, some radio waves, you know, use the ionosphere to propagate around the Earth. And if that changes, you can, you can get radio blackouts. Um, but also the flare is giving like great sort of streams of high, very high energy particles. Those can hit the Earth and have effects, um, you know, particularly on satellites. And the Earth's magnetic field can be disrupted. And that can have lots of effects as well on sort of our different technologies. Is this the sort of thing that someone might notice, say you're using your sat-nav in your car? Is it the kind of thing that, that, could, that could knock off something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think potentially, because a satellite, all those things are, are controlled by satellites, basically. So we use GPS and that to do with satellites. And then if there is a solar storm and then the instrumentation in that, that satellite is hit by you know a cloud of particles from the sun, then it could stop operating perhaps temporarily, or it could be, you know, kind of destroyed altogether. But even temporarily, yes, yeah, suddenly everything like your sat-nav could fail, your mobile phone could fail, um, lots, of, lots of systems could go. Mm. Um, so it is actually a very big concern because we're so dependent on these things nowadays. Yeah, but also from your, from your talk, it seemed to come across that there is still quite a lot we don't know about how the sun works and how the space weather works, and there's still quite a lot we need, we need to learn. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of things we don't understand. Um, and to some extent, I think it's the more we discover the more we realise, you know, you, you, you find out new things, but that just throws up new questions, basically. But one of the things that's been a problem for quite a while is why the temperature in the, the temperature in the corona is about a million degrees, whereas the temperature at the surface is only a few thousand degrees. And that is obviously incredibly surprising. You just expect it would get cooler as you go further away from the centre of the sun. And I say, as you go up into the corona, it actually gets hotter. Um, and we kind of understand a bit. We know it's something to do with the magnetic field, that you're sort of building up energy in the magnetic field and, and somehow dissipating that. But the details are still not understood at all, and there's kind of competing theories, um, and, you know, nobody knows for sure exactly how it works. Mm. So it's quite a major thing, and we really don't understand it. Presumably that's... Um what a lot of your, your work at the University of Manchester is about. I mean, what do you and your colleagues kind of do on a, on, on a daily basis and what's your research involved in? So what we do at Manchester, we're on the theoretical side, so we don't actually do observations. I mean, there are obviously people who like, or mostly, we do a little bit actually, but 
that's not our, our main thing. Our main thing is do, doing theories, particularly computer simulations, trying to understand things like, you know, how is the corona heated? Um, how do we get this energy out of the magnetic field? Um, again, in a flare, how, how, how do we get the energy out? How does this accelerate the particles? And we're trying to understand a process called magnetic reconnection which is generally believed to be behind flares, the magnetic field lines basically breaking and reconnecting, and that gives out all the energy. But a lot of how it works is not understood. So I say we're developing models of that and then trying to compare those with the observations and sort of make predictions of what people should see. And, you know, together with the theory and observations, that should take us closer to answering some of these questions. And presumably um, we will learn a lot more in um, the next five years or so because there are a few missions planned. That's right, yeah. There's some yeah. very exciting things um, coming. In fact, very soon, um, I think August the 4th or within um, a couple of weeks of that, we hope to have Parker Solar Probe launched, which is a NASA um, mission. And that is, um, is we described as a, a mission which is going to the sun. So it's going to get incredibly close to the sun. So it's going to be just eight solar radii above the surface of the sun. So that really is in the inner corona. And so it is literally going to be sitting inside the inner corona and, and sort of measuring the plasma around it um, far, far closer than any you know, man-made thing has ever been before. And so that is very exciting. And a year or two after that, there's going to be a European uh, mission called Solar Orbiter, which is also going to go very close to the sun, but not quite as close, um, about a quarter of the distance from the sun to the Earth. But that's going to look both at, again, the plasma that it's sitting in at the solar wind, but also it's going to look at the, the sun and kind of put the two things together. So, for example, you might see a flare go off and it'll be watching the flare go off and then the sort of stuff will come off from the flare and then it will actually, the spacecraft will actually be sitting in it and so it will be able to sort of see what, what comes past it. Um, so, and that also is going to fly basically in, at high latitudes sort of over the poles of the sun. So we'll get a view of the sun that we, we don't normally have. We normally always see it kind of side on. We're looking at the equator basically and we'll be able to see those higher latitudes. So for those interested in the sun and the secrets of the sun, it's uh, exciting times ahead, yeah, I guess. Yeah, very exciting, yeah. So watch out for um, Solar Orbiter and Parker Solar Probe, definitely. Philippa, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm talking to Monica Grady, a professor of planetary and space science from the Open University. Um, she's just been talking about the prospects of finding extraterrestrial intelligence. So um, I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about what's being done to, to try and find these extraterrestrial intelligences? And so I was talking uh, about something called the Drake equation, which is, I describe it not as an equation, but more like the back of an envelope calculation, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a rough idea of, you know, well, what's the chances of finding it? because this was an uh, this was a a uh, expression put together by Frank Drake 50 years ago more than 50 years ago when he was trying to assess well there's lots of stars there might be lots of planets remember at the time he was doing it we hadn't found any planets around other stars and 
Uh, so he was trying to assess, you know, how many stars, how many planets, how many planets with, with water on that aren't too hot, not too cold, how many of those have got life on them, you know, and go on and on and on until you get to a number, which is how many of the stars that have got planets that have got this, that have got this, that have got this, have got intelligent communicating civilizations that have lasted a reasonable amount of time on their on their uh, planetary body so it's a, a lot of probabilities let's say mm. or improbabilities <laughs> and so there's you said there's, there's a lot of uh, probabilities in that uh, the drake equation how are people sort of trying to to narrow those down and work out what those probabilities might be so there are eight terms in the Drake equation and four of them are are sort of well known mm -hmm. and so like the number of stars in the Milky Way we more or less know that the number of planets around stars we, we sort of know that or we've been measuring them using uh, telescopes like the Kepler space mission that was looking for e extra um, solar planets so we've got four of those bits of the expression I've got real numbers proper numbers mm -hmm. now when Frank Drake was doing this like none of them had real numbers so it's, <laughs> it's fantastic the other four are the ones where you you start to wave your arms a bit more but they will potentially become better known so it's things like the number of um uh, bodies on which life has arisen well we only know of one at the moment mm. but you never know if we explore mars we might be able to to find more. The number of places where uh, a life has got going and has started to communicate, we don't know. But the more we keep exploring, the more uh, uh, extrasolar planets we find and the more that are rocky and, you know, got water and all that sort of stuff, the more we keep exploring, the better the limits are, the narrower the limits are on these numbers. So eventually you never know we might get down to a proper number mm. and so how are people actually sort of going about trying to to sort of search out for these these extraterrestrial intelligences well the main way that we're searching for them is by listening for them all right because the the nearest star is uh, four light years away, uh, so it takes light four years to get to us. So if you've got any, you know, communicating civilization there, it's going to take them a heck of a long time to, to get there, mm -hmm. to, to get to us. Um, and so we, we're listening for signals which travel at the speed of light. We're listening for radio signals. We're listening for particular uh, patterns of radio signals. And... Um, we're more in the listening mode rather than the speaking mode, although we have made attempts in the past to send out specific signals. And we are broadcasting all the time ourselves from, from light from, from the earth, radiation from the earth. So there aren't any specific space missions that are going to look for alien civilizations. There has been space mission and there are other ones planned which are looking for extrasolar planets and once we've really got to grips with those we'll be looking for extrasolar planets with atmospheres and all those other things um, rather than just saying well, right we found another 400 planets or whatever um, and so as the technology gets better we will be able to investigate those exoplanets more more closely more thoroughly but 
given that they're round stars, which are, you know, 10, 20, 50 light years away, what the chances of us ever actually meeting face to face with an extraterrestrial civilization, I think is, is, is unlikely. Has there been much thought in, put into to what people would actually do if they did manage to find a message? Uh, I don't know, uh, is the is the short answer to that one. There has been discussion about, you know, what if we find microorganisms on Mars, which is the most likely type of extraterrestrial um, species we could find. But extraterrestrial intelligence, if something did arrive and sort of said, you know, here I am, talk to me, I don't know, what would we do? What, mm. you know, let me bounce the question back to you. What would you do? Um, I'd get very excited and then probably have a little panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, because I know there's also, there's quite a lot of, um, famously Stephen, the late Stephen Hawking sort of said that perhaps we shouldn't be broadcasting these messages out to people. Yeah. Um, and, and that we might be, that might be slightly dangerous. And I was wondering, what's, you, what's your thoughts on that? Do I you don't think? think? I don't think it's dangerous because one would hope that if there was an, extraterrestrial civilization that was communicating and had been communicating for a significant part of its uh, existence as a planet, then they would have got to a stage when they know that you get a lot further by collaboration and communication than mm. you do by warfare. Mm. That you're much better trying to make friends with people rather than uh, making war at them. Mm. Uh, you know, all the Hollywood blo blockbusters that have so many, you know, Independence Day and all that sort of stuff, you know. No, I just, I, just don't, I just don't go for it. You, you just have to look at the International Space Station to, to, to see that the only way that we can advance in the universe is by working together. Absolutely, absolutely, mm. yeah. Some interesting food for thought, Monica. Thank you very much. Thank you, my pleasure. Well, that's it from us uh, at uh, Blue Dot 2018. It's been a fantastic weekend. Um, have you enjoyed it, Ez? I've really enjoyed it. It's been really interesting to, to hear lots of talks, see lots of music, and learn all about space. And, of course, uh, next year, um, the, the festival will probably... Um, coincide with the uh... 50th anniversary of the Apollo landings on the moon so that should be interesting I'll definitely be back next year exactly um, from all of us at BBC Sky Night magazine um, thanks very much for listening thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher for more of our podcasts visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes.